This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. break from wall-to-wall arraignment coverage? I know I do. I mean, I'm bored of my own opinions. I can't imagine what anybody else thinks. I tell you, for the last just about 24 hours, any TV station you turn to, any cable news outlet you go to, any radio station you turn to, any newspaper you pick up, they're all reporting the same facts. And then they have the same set of analysis. So I don't know about you, but I need at least a couple of hours of a break. Honestly, I don't know what I can say. I don't know what I can add that has not already been said or, or analyzed by someone else. I mean, over the last 24 hours, I've heard from some of the brightest legal minds in the world, some of the brightest political minds in the world. And I really don't know that I can add anything. So you know what we're going to do? We're going to be talking about something you're not going to be hearing anywhere else right now, and that is the final frontier. That's right, space. And there is nobody that I would rather go to space with, at least conversationally, than Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, a veteran radio and TV broadcaster and edutainer with expertise in astronomy, space, a bunch of other areas, man with the best voice in all of radio. He's also uh, the host of the Dr. Sky Experience podcast, which you can listen to at redapplepodcastnetwork.com. He is kind enough to join us on a semi-monthly slash bi-weekly basis. Uh, Very pleased to welcome back Steve Kate. Steve, it's great to talk to you. Well, good morning, Frank. Good to be with you and the listeners, as we like to call this particular hour with your okay, the infinite side of midnight, as we talk about things both near and far. And, you know, we could change the subject, and I know people probably wouldn't like it. We could do a trial with the indictment of Pluto and find out whether or not it's a dwarf planet or not. But I think people have had enough for today, like you said. So let's journey beyond this world and Learn about some things and what, as we like to say, open up people's minds, expand their minds on things that don't necessarily have to have a political party associated with it, right or wrong. Amen. Well, somebody that might be almost as polarizing as Donald Trump in some quarters is Elon Musk. He has his fans. He has his detractors. And I think these days everyone spends a lot of time talking about him because he is the head of Twitter. But uh, obviously a lot of people are very interested in electric cars and they've paid attention to his role at Tesla. It's easy to forget. He's involved in so many things. It's easy to forget that he is also the CEO of uh, SpaceX. So um, SpaceX is making some big news on the space front. They are preparing for the launch of a starship. What exactly is this and how is this forthcoming launch different from other private sector spacefarers that we've seen thus far? Well, here we go, Frank, down in Boca Chica, way down south near 
Padre Island along the Gulf of Mexico is Elon Musk's starbase. And for so long, he's been trying to get the ultimate rocket to go to space. And this one, as you described, is called Starship. It's an amazing stainless steel rocket that if people can look at it, they haven't maybe seen a picture of it. It's all over the Internet. It looks like something from a 1960s or 50s sci-fi movie, more particularly the 50s. And intentionally, it was made of stainless steel because the characteristics for the heat absorption and its ability to endure you know, multiple launches, since it's not going to be a one-time rocket. The short story is they're looking to launch this massive rocket, probably, by all estimation, the most powerful rocket ever to be launched as far as power. Imagine 16 million pounds of thrust with these 33 giant Raptor engines at the bottom of what's called Booster B-4. And on top of that, they're going to stack this little over 160-foot starship on this massive rocket. And the latest information that I can tell you, we were telling people this uh, during the day today, doing some public programs, that they may be launching as early as the 20th of April. But some have even said, apparently Elon Musk, I can't confirm this, somebody told me, or again, you don't believe everything you hear, that it may be as soon as the 10th, just coming up here, that they're going to launch this. Now, what's going to happen is, once this rocket gets off the ground, it's held in place by a big launch tower called Mechazilla. And the reason for that name is it has this grappling arm that holds the massive booster. And in the future, not only will the spacecraft come back, Starship, but the booster rocket will eventually, this is really bizarre stuff, way sci-fi, that massive booster will come back on its own, just like the Falcon 9 rockets do, and land and be grappled by the big giant Mechazilla arm. So here we go with the launch. It launches after 170 seconds, Starship separates from the booster, and in this particular mission, they're hoping to get it not all the way around the Earth. It's going to go orbital. And they've already had this area, just in the north area, very close to the state of Hawaii, where this will actually come down as the first major test. And remember, the problematic thing with Starship is they've had many of these that have gone up. It has to go up into the sky. I think it's gone up to 50,000, 60,000 feet. It has to pivot itself in turn. And then it has to do this kind of a roll where it actually can face itself so that it can slowly descend and land. So what's interesting on this, it uses the Raptor engines use an incredible new mixture of power using liquid oxygen and liquid methane, which is a much more efficient, according to Elon Musk and other space scientists. So we wish them well with this, but can you imagine, Frank, 16 million pounds of thrust? It's going to be one hell of a sky show if it all goes off at night, but just we wish them well on this. It's, it's the stuff that 20, 30 years ago we would have looked and said, no, we read about that in what? Sci-fi uh, books and, and stories and novels. It's amazing. Uh, absolutely. Now, um, we know that uh, some of the SpaceX endeavors have been uh, totally private and others have been sort of a partnership with NASA or another government uh, entity. Uh, this would fall into the, into the strictly private category? At this point, yes, because remember, these are all tests, and I hate the word experimental, but I mm -hmm. guess that's really what the truth is. But eventually, let's look at the positive side of this. Once Starship performs as it's supposed to, you're going to have missions that are going to go out into space with the Starship rocket, eventually moving out to the moon, moving out to Mars. And that's going to be, you know, you can put a number of people on board this, not just like a four-person spacecraft. And we hopefully will talk about Artemis and what they've just done with the selection of a new crew. That's a big day for NASA. But this is going to be, according to Elon Musk, this is the pathway to moving out away from the planet Earth. Because remember, these are reusable rockets. And that's quite interesting because 
the old story with the space shuttle and such. Solid rocket motors burned out. They came down in the ocean. These particular things were semi-reusable, if you want to call it that. But his whole platform, it's been very successful. You have to give kudos to their design team and all the people that are the engineers that work at SpaceX because with the great success of the Falcon 9 booster has really put them uh, way up on the top of the chart. All right. So since you mentioned uh, Artemis, uh, let's talk about uh, what's going on here. Some new astronauts announced that if people aren't up on this or if they haven't heard our uh, infinite side of midnight segments before, we've been chronicling this. Artemis is uh, a fairly ambitious uh, plan to go back to the moon. Uh, The NASA astronauts. Uh, Victor Glover and Christina Koch. I'm not sure if it's Koch or Coach, but uh, they mm-hmm. were talking about Artemis. Here's a little bit of that audio from yesterday. I want to, uh, one, say that I hope that you have all the faith you should have in this crew. We're going to do our best to make you proud. And I uh, hope that this mission can continue to serve as inspiration to do great things. You know, the thing about records is that it's not about any one individual's success or contribution even. It's about the fact that it marks a milestone, a state of the art of where we're at and where we're choosing to go. So, Steve, give us the tale of the tape on the Artemis crew. Well, here's what's happened. The Artemis 1 mission, as we know, back in November, very successful. It moved out beyond the moon, farther out into space than even Apollo 13 in its almost near ill-fated mission. God bless those astronauts that got us back and they got them back with the ground crew and the quick thinking of James Lovell and the entire crew. But this particular mission will replicate pretty much, if you were going down a highway, it would be kind of going down the same, you know, trajectory or path. But what's interesting about this, the entire crew is made up of Reed Weissman, the commander, Victor Glover, first African-American astronaut on board this particular Artemis-type spacecraft. He's the pilot. Christina Koch, I think that's how you say the name, or Koch. She's a mission specialist. And by the way, we'll talk a little bit about her in just a second. But a Canadian gentleman, Jeremy Hansen, will also be on as a mission specialist. Canada, this is a joint effort, too, with the Canadian Space Agency. If we go back into space history, the Space Shuttle had this amazing robotic arm that was pretty much a Canadian-designed arm. But let's go back to Christina for a moment, because some speculations say that she might still be considered to be, among other females, the first woman to walk on the moon because of her experience now to go to Artemis II. Mm. So Artemis II, if all goes well, expect a launch date, not exact, but somewhere within a time frame of late 2024. So they have a lot of time to get the bugs out of what they had in the past, and there were some. I mean, we had issues with engines. We had issues with leaks and different things. You can't have a leaking spacecraft. I mean, it's like a nuclear bomb sitting on the launch pad if things don't go right. That's horrible. But then Artemis III, which according to many, may launch sometime in 2025, and that would be a mission. This is quite interesting, to return astronauts to the surface of the moon. But there's a lot of work to do between now and then, but we wish them well because it's great that they have this crew. And myself and a lot of other people, and maybe yourself too, I'd like to try to secure an interview with uh, Christina on this and the whole female astronaut crew because – You never know. If you spin that wheel, one or more of those may be uh, the first uh, female astronauts, rightfully so, to uh, return to the moon after a long absence since Apollo 17. Absolutely. That would be great. By the way, I didn't give the phone number. If people have questions, by the way, uh, for Dr. Sky, Steve Cates, you can give us a call throughout the hour at 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. NASA 
confirming that on October 9th, 2023, our solar system was, well, not, uh, I guess, not 2023, but uh, uh, previous to that, our solar system was struck by a gamma ray burst originating 1,900 light years away. They say that this gamma ray burst is um, a one in 10,000 year record. Oh, what exactly what exactly is a gamma ray burst and why is this particular one so special? Well, Frank, this is interesting. And just to give precision on this, nobody really understands what gamma ray bursters are. Here's a theory. And we could talk all night and all morning. The collision of neutron stars. These are stars that are what happens after stellar evolution continues. Stars can go through a path after they collapse and maybe go supernova in one case. Or in some cases, they may just die out and become red dwarfs. Or eventually, through the entire change of the you know, genetic species of stars, they can be these tiny little things, maybe the size of the Earth, that if you scooped up material off of this, the material is so compact it's mind-boggling. It's like taking a teaspoon if you have coffee and you're putting sugar in a coffee cup or something. And all of a sudden, that material weighs more than a building, say 50 stories tall. It's hard to comprehend. So back on October 9th, the one I'm talking about here is still the most powerful blast of energy from space. Think of the little neutron star, if that's what's happening. There was a collision between two of them. Oh, don't do that in the universe, because that's what you get. This incredible blast of energy, like a lighthouse beacon. It actually pierced. It was two billion light years away. Isn't that bizarre? Two billion light years away. But the little focus of energy actually pierced through the Milky Way because it was on the other side. And get a load of this. Like auroras do, they excite the upper atmosphere of the Earth, producing auroras and other effects. But in this case, Frank, it actually excited the upper atmosphere of the Earth for a short period of time. Its official designation, GRB, for gamma ray burst, it's called GRB-221-009A. Now, that has a lot to do with the, the classification for month, year, date, and such. But Nobody really understands this, but I'm just you know, befuddled by this, even describing this to this great audience of yours, that this is still the strangest type of thing. Now, let's look at how lucky we are. Let's say that we had a gamma ray burster within the distance of, let's say, a star that more likely will go supernova, the star Betelgeuse with that funny name. What would it be like if that same type of gamma ray burster hit the Earth from only 500 light years mm. away? I think we should be very grateful for the fact that that was 2 billion light years away. And just to give an idea of the size of the number, if we have the audience start counting, have them call me on my private line or email me when they stop counting. And that would be the most ludicrous thing I've ever said, because you imagine how long it would take to count to a million? Yeah, uh, No, it's uh, substantial. Right. Yeah. So the point is, look how far away something like that is. And still, it had some kind of a tickling effect to our own planet from 2 billion light years away? That's crazy. It sure is. 800-848-9222 if you have questions. Let me begin with Paul in Paramus. Hello, Paul. Hey, how you doing? Good morning. I'm just, I'm just amazed of, like, space and all of that and all yes. that, everything you guys right. talk so about. So are we, Paul, yeah. It's just crazy, like... Yeah, did you have a question, Paul? Right. No, I'm just saying it's crazy. It is indeed. It is indeed. 
You know, if I was giving out a prize, I'd probably give it. I haven't had anybody else call yet, or we haven't. But, Paul, you're so right. It's really kind of crazy and bizarre. And that's why when we study this thing called quantum physics, that's even more bizarre stuff that we're trying to figure out. And we've only done this, just like the Wright brothers, 1903. Aviation is so, you know, it's such a short time. Look how advanced we are. Look at how far we've come in just maybe 100 years ago. I mean, for since 100 years, it's quite amazing, and it is crazy. It sure, it sure is. All right, we're going to continue with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, in a moment. If you have questions, give us a call, 800-848-9222. This is the infinite side of midnight here on uh, what's normally the other side of midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Side of midnight, you're listening to Spaceman by the Killers. You ever want to know what kind of music we play on this show? Uh, just join our Facebook group, search on Facebook, Morano Radio Fans and Haters. If we're singing about the Spaceman, that means we're joined by our resident Spaceman, Steve Cates. You can listen to him on the Dr. Sky Experience. Just go to redapplepodcastnetwork.com or you can search uh, the Dr. Sky Experience on any podcast app and it comes. Right up, uh, Steve, a lot of people eager to talk with you, but uh, I love weeks like this where you have multiple religions celebrating holidays uh, the same week. We have Easter coming up. We have uh, Passover coming up. Tell me, yesterday as I was driving home, it was still dark out, I saw a, just a beautiful moon. Not only was it fullish, but it was kind of reddish. Tell me the full story, the story of the full pink moon and how that might relate to some of the holidays that we're experiencing this week. Well, absolutely, Frank. Let me be one of the first to wish everybody a healthy and joyous Easter and Passover season. And we go back to these connections between astronomy and the sky. And really what we're seeing is the moon is officially known here as the full pink moon. As we start to see flowers blossoming in many parts of the country here in Arizona, we've had a rather cold uh, winter here. And even still, in many parts of North America, the flowers are starting to blossom again. So thus, the pink of flowers, a connection. But there's also another story behind this particular moon, also known as the full Paschal moon. And we look at a translation of Paschal from the Aramaic word, which is really the word for Passover. So officially, even though you saw that beautiful moon that looked like a full moon, remember we talked about this a long time ago, for the moon to be really 100% full, it has to be 180 degrees exactly away from the sun. Sure look full to you, sure look full to me. But that event takes place on the morning of the 6th at 12.35 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time. 
And that's interesting because it's a moon that is in so many ways so, uh, how do I say this, so connected to the season. And here's how Easter is actually derived on the calendar astronomically. Easter is officially the first Sunday after the full moon that's after the vernal equinox or the beginning of spring. Now, I'm talking the northern hemisphere, of course, because in the southern hemisphere, they have a different you know, terminology for this. So that's how Easter is at least located on the calendar. And I don't think many people even knew that. It's something that, again, goes to our connection to great history of those that the ancients and the people in the Middle, Eve, you know, the Middle Ages that studied the sky. I think it's a beautiful story and, and a beautiful season coming. Yeah, no doubt about it. 800-848-9222. Jim is in New Jersey. Hello, Jim. How are you doing there, Frank? Uh, Dr. Uh, Sky, I have a question for you. Yes. you. Good morning to you, too. If you light a light bulb outside of your house, Will that energy and light be be able to go to the end of the universe with the right equipment be detected and come back? Well, if you had a let's do let's do it the reverse way. Very good question, Jim. If you had this massive telescope somewhere out in the universe, and I'm talking about almost infinite size, sure, those photons yeah. that are coming out of that would definitely be detected. But the problematic thing is, just take a candle versus a searchlight. Obviously, the candle's power is extremely small in the amount of what we call photons, but a light right. source like a big searchlight, naturally, you'd be able to see far. Like out here, let's say in the West, like if you go to Vegas and you see the Luxor Hotel, it's got the most brilliant beam that goes out into space. But yes, technically, if you had a receiving device on your end, massive in size, it could detect every type of photon that's out there. But sadly, that's not going to happen. But wow, that's a no. cool question. There you so go. we're going to be able to watch I Love Lucy from 1952. Yes, you bring up something very interesting. And I mentioned this before. Somebody had asked me a few weeks ago when we were doing a public program. You know, a lot of senior centers I do because these folks have, you know, so much interest in mm. these subjects, like a lot of people. And the question that was basically asked me, what's the farthest television signal that's actually going out into space? And I said it was actually the Berlin Olympics, at least from the, one of the first television was ever developed, or at least we think right around there. So could you imagine if you were watching television, those signals are still permeating out into space. But I Love Lucy would be a better thing I'd like to watch. <laughs> Thank you, Jim. <laughs> hey, let me ask you about this. We so often hear about the Aurora Borealis, and we, sure. we, we think of Aurora Borealis taking place in places uh, – in in the far north, places like uh, Alaska, Canada, uh, the Northern Lights, there are some um, auroras that are being seen as far south as Florida. What's going on? Why are Floridians seeing auroras when we're used to Alaskans seeing this well, sort of thing? that's a great question. Blame it on Solar Cycle 25. The scientists kind of got it wrong in a way. I mean, they usually do good predictions, but they didn't think solar cycle 25 would be this you know, intense. So the bottom line is the amount of energy coming off the sun. We had a large, major solar color coronal mass ejection, a halo one, which means it was on the far side of the sun. And it just enveloped. If you looked at the sun as you're looking at this video, you see the thing not just come out of one side, but just envelops the whole sun and comes out in all directions. We had a geomagnetic storm, I believe, like, oh, I think it was toward the 25th and 26th of March. That energy plus other energies that are still coming off the sun with these X flares, Frank, it excited the atmosphere so far south, people in Florida, 
we're actually getting visual images, photographic images. And now I believe that 32 states so far of the 50, we obviously have had reports of people and actually taking pictures of this. And, wow, how lucky that is. But just get set for more because the best way to do this on a clear night, away from as much light as you can, and for all the listeners all over this big radio station's footprint, if you're living in particularly northern climates, let's say up like Minnesota, in New York State, way up there, and even as we talked about the central states, looking to the north in the nighttime sky when there's no moon, that red glow hopefully is not a forest fire on the horizon, but the auroral glow. And many people tell me that you know in Alaska or Canada they see this so often that it's as if they you know when rain comes you know, on and off on a regular basis, it's still a beautiful sight. So keep your eyes to the skies. 800-848-9222. Keith is in Cincinnati. Hello, Keith. Hi, Dr. Scott. How are you doing? Good morning, uh, Keith. I'm doing well. I got a question for you. What do you know about this exoplanet that's been recently discovered about 12 light years from Earth that has a repeating radio signal emanating from it? Well, this is an interesting story, right? You bring up a very interesting story. Now we know that this small star system here that was imaged by a telescope called Gaia, it's one of these space telescopes that kind of can see much of everything. It's got a big, like a giant megapixel camera. What it's been able to detect is one of the planetary objects there, for some strange reason, has a magnetic field. And what it's doing is it's actually sending out bursts of energy. So the scientists think, and this is just a theory, that because it has some sort of a magnetic field, it probably has some sort of an atmosphere. So then go figure, that might be also indicative of the fact that maybe, just maybe out there, there might be some sort of life. Now, we don't want to get people too excited, right, about this if we don't know for sure, Keith, but it could be, who knows, maybe the beginnings of organic life, maybe how the Earth started billions of years ago. But it's an interesting detection because 20, 30 years ago, this would all be the stuff that we'd read about in a science fiction book. Yeah, great question, Keith. Just to follow up on that, Steve. So researchers, based on what I've read, uh, they've published a paper in the Nature Astronomy Journal and these astrophysicists, including some very reputable people – they they actually believe that this planet that has its own magnetic field mm-hmm. could actually be supporting extraterrestrial beings? Well, I don't know about beings. I wouldn't go that far. I mean, I wouldn't jump to that conclusion because yet we haven't seen much of anything out there. We could talk about other star systems that may have more of a likelihood of life. But I'll go with the I'll, I'll go with this if I was a betting man on this. I would say that this particular star, Frank, that we're talking about with the magnetic field since that could be in, can, you know, indicative of having some sort of an atmosphere around it, maybe life primordial. But if those signals come to us in a regular pattern, like, say, a Morse code signal, then I think we really have to pay a lot more attention mm. to that. Because there's other star systems, too, that maybe we can talk about here. One of them is called the TRAPPIST-1 system. And this is a star system that's very interesting. It supposedly has seven exoplanets that are around it. None of these were photographed, by the way, by telescopes. They're all what they call a transit system. In other words, these objects kind of go across the disk of the primary star, and they see different ones at different times, assuming that there's seven of these. But what's odd about that is it's not around a regular star like our sun. You know, our sun's a four-billion-year-old star called a G-class, spectral-class star. This is actually ironic. It's a small dwarf star in the constellation of Aquarius, 
And now they found out that the one planet they figured out by doing this experiment, you know, this transit system, the planet's too hot to have an atmosphere. It's over 400 degrees Fahrenheit. But still, there's others in that system that may, further out, may be conducive to life around a very unusual kind of a star location called a red dwarf. So we'll have to see what they come up with. 800-848-9222. The Air Force, uh, that is, uh, even even though we now have the Space Force, the Air Force is still something we tend to talk about. Uh, anything that involves looking up, they apparently have pulled the plug on this hypersonic missile project. What was this hypersonic missile project, and why has the Air Force pulled the plug on it? Well, I don't know the real answer to this, but this is what I'm reading into this, Frank. It could be a conflict of who can pay for which project. There's like two competing projects. One is a more advanced cruise missile, an air breather type missile, that may also have the capability of going hypersonic. And this other project that they were doing that they had little or no success with. But let me define this. The hypersonic glide vehicle is very interesting. It's a warhead or a ballistic missile that can maneuver and glide at hypersonic speed. So it would be launched from its launcher. And I hate to use the North Koreans for this, but if you look at one of those big, I don't know how many wheels are on the darn thing. Imagine paying for tires on like 22 giant tires. The thing has this big missile on top, just like the Chinese. The Chinese have one called a ZD, or excuse me, a ZF-ZF hypersonic missile. It's on this big launcher, mobile launcher. But what happens is when you launch it, it goes to hypersonic speed. We're talking maybe Mach 20. And then what happens, why it's called the glide vehicle, is that let's say it had a nuclear-capable series of, of munitions on it. It glides through the atmosphere, and it can actually be steerable to a location that they want to hit. And the sad part about this is they think, I mean, the U.S. military intelligence knows about this, that the Chinese have developed these carrier-killer-type hypersonic missiles. They could fire them and penetrate the thick steel walls of these beautiful aircraft carriers that we have out in the ocean. But the interesting thing about that is, here's the problem with hypersonic. You have limited amount of time. In other words, if they launch something like that, or anybody, we or they or whoever, how do you respond to it? Because imagine something traveling 20,000 miles an hour. How do, you, how do you find a deterrent to knock it down out of the sky? I don't think the Patriot missile system, I'm not an expert on that, may have the capability of knocking down something literally going that fast, and that's maneuverable. It's a very interesting project. It wasn't developed uh, in recent time. It actually goes back to Hitler's Germany when they developed an aircraft or a space plane called a Sanger space plane. It was launched. I don't know if you ever saw a sci-fi movie. Uh, it was about this big arc that they sent up into space. Forgive me for not knowing the name, but they launched it on this big rail system, and it went up into space. And what was interesting is that the Sanger project that the Germans had, they were, if, they, if they did get the nuclear capability before us for the bomb, they had it specifically to fly out into space and drop their munition over a city like New York. But the problem is, in, in conclusion, it's very difficult wow. to stop something go hypersonic. That's crazy as far as the speed. But we're all developing this. The Russians claim to have it. The Chinese seem to have operational. But as far as the other one we're talking about, I believe truly, and I don't know all the intel, I mean, I, ho I hope that this country has all the defensive measures to keep up with other countries only for the sake of you have to in this kind of a world today, sad to say. 800-848-9222. Uh, Billy is in Florida. Hello, Billy. Uh, hello, Billy. All right, Billy, call back when you get a better phone. Don is in Long Beach. Hello, Don. 
Hey, Frank. Hey, Dr. Sky. Good morning. I had a question about SETI, the, you know, search for extraterrestrial sure. intelligence. Um, we're limited, I guess. This this kind of uh, goes with a similar question a couple of minutes ago. Um, when you talk about the speed of light, um, um, and we're searching for intelligent, you know, extraterrestrial intelligence way mm-hmm. out, way out in other ga- galaxies, sure. we really can't tell real time, you know, what's going on because it takes so mm-hmm. long for right. the light to reach us. Is that correct? Absolutely, Don. So let's use a simple example. If you look at a web telescope image and it's penetrated almost, as we say, almost is not a good answer, but way back in time, just right after, if we talk billions of years or so, after the big expansion or the so-called Big Bang. So we're not seeing that in real time as if it's today, April 5, 2023. We're seeing what the image looked like when we see it, which was a long time ago. Take, for example, If people like ourselves go out in the night sky and we can see this in a dark sky, even city dwellers can see this much, the Andromeda galaxy is two and a half million light years away from our eye. And a lot of people, I I recommend people do this, Don, because people can see it in binoculars more into the fall. But if you see it, you're looking at something two and a half million light years ago. So let's say that galaxy had changed its shape and size or something happened like major supernova exploded in there. We wouldn't be seeing it, of course, in real time. That's the answer. Thank you, Don. Yeah, just to be clear, then, a lot of these images that we've seen from the James Webb Telescope, which is one of the most advanced telescopes that we've ever had in the history of human civilizations, that's not stuff uh, that – and they're beautiful images that folks have been seeing on the internet, on television. That's not stuff that's happening in real time. That's stuff that has happened thousands of years ago. Well, billions of years ago, more precisely. And how about this one picture? People can look it up. It's real simple. You see the warpage of space-time, in other words, gravity sources, you see these star images that look like they're repeated, like they just you know, just copied themselves in the same field. So you see one star, and you'll see another one next to it, and it's something called gravitational lensing. The simple answer is time and space-time is warped by gravity. So if you're looking so far back billions of years ago, you see these images that are of stars that are close or colliding or whatever, but because of the great gravity that's out there or the great mass of these objects, we're actually not just seeing a long time ago. We're seeing an image as if it's been mirrored over even more bizarre. So it's not one singular object. It may be replicated because of the pressures, uh, not pressures, that's a bad word, because of the warpage of space-time. That's the whole thing. We were just talking about the uh, hypersonic missile a moment ago. James in Yonkers has a question about that. Hello, James. Hello. Hey, how are you? Hi, how are you good, doing? Good, good. Both of you. good morning. Um, so what I was thinking was, you're talking about a hypersonic missile. And uh, yes, a few years ago, actually probably more like 10 years ago, I saw a YouTube video. And they, they have guns in the United States that shoot up to a million rounds per minute. Right. Um, think of like a gun that has multiple barrels on it, and they fire mm-hmm. simultaneously. Would... Putting that many small projectiles in the air, rather than accurately trying to intercept Mm -hmm. a missile like that, which would be nearly impossible, creating almost a shield of millions of rounds of bullets per minute, if you You know something like that's coming towards you. Oh, you do ask a good question. In a long time, Frank doesn't even know this, but I've been in the firearms industry for so long. Mm. And I also was in the process of talking about these type weapons. The Israelis, forgive me for not knowing the name. They have videos of showing it looks like a big stream of material, looks like rapid-fire bullets 
bigger than a minigun, mm-hmm. you know, those you see on the helicopters and the big AC-130 yeah. gunships. But, right, if you put so many of these projectiles out there, the possibility yeah. is, of course, the more the more lead you put out there or projectiles, kinetic, they're more kinetic, I should describe it, meaning they're not explosive charges per se. They're actually just pieces of metal, and if they can hit a target. But the point of the matter is, yes, there's a lot of these developed weapons. They're also called maglev guns. They have these magnetic guns that can actually fire these projectiles at a very rapid rate. And there was something, if you look yeah. it up, called Metal Storm. It was actually okay. a, a device that you could use like a, a ground-position machine gun, but it would shoot yeah. like, I don't know, 30,000 rounds per second. And I know that sounds crazy, mm-hmm. per second. So, yes, technology yeah. like that may be able to slow something, but you got to be really quick on the trigger, right? And you got to know your target. Yeah. <laughs> hey, yeah, thank no, it's you. It's all very fascinating. Yeah, it certainly oh, it is. is. Thanks, James. Hey, we're going to continue with your calls in a moment. I have uh, pages worth of questions that I'm hoping to get to as many of as possible. Steve Cates is here, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. Be sure to check out the Dr. Sky experience. You can search that at redapplepodcastnetwork.com or just search the uh, Dr. Sky Experience on any podcast app. If you have questions, we have one, two, three open lines remaining, 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Black hole sun, won't you come? Wash Every two weeks, we go to school. And uh, every two weeks, I feel a little bit better prepared if an astronomy category pops up on Jeopardy. And we owe that to our resident radio professor, uh, Dr. Sky, Steve Cates. And uh, a lot of people eager to talk with you, Steve. But I do have to ask you first about these uh, comments made by um, NASA Administrator Bill Nelson. He had a lot to say on the on the uh, Artemis front, but he also had a great deal to say about uh, about China, and it was very interesting in terms of basically he was criticizing China's space agency for a lack of transparency, and uh, this is really interesting. He says they're simply not cooperative. Nor are they transparent. What do we read into this? The fact that the U.S. and NASA seems to be throwing down the gauntlet over space with China. Well, it's once again politics, in my opinion. And it's very sad, Frank, because, you know, look, Chinese people are wonderful. But the Communist Chinese Party, if you look at all the things that they're trying to do out there, not not sounding conspiratorial here. When it comes to space, they are simply like the like Bill Nelson is describing they're not cooperative. They don't want to share information about things, and, and certainly that's not the way we would think about it if you're trying to open the minds of all, all the peoples of the world here. But we have to be serious about this. But you mentioned before the you know Dr. Sky experience here on WABCradio.com. I also talk about American exceptionalism from a show that I used to do, well, still proud to talk about it, called A Call to Rights, about our Constitution, our Bill of Rights. But here's the connection. There's a book that we're going to have an interview with, a gentleman named Colonel Grant Newsham, 
And it's a brand new book called When China Attacks, A Warning to America. And not to go deep into the Communist Chinese Party and jump up and down here to, you know, to start you know, talking about how we have to attack them, hardly. It's just that there's not cooperation there. And if you read into this, it seems like it's all the way across the board and so many things. And I'm not surprised uh, that the way it is. I mean, it's a shame. We, we have better cooperation in the past from the, from the Russian government as we were partners and still, you know, kind of a low hush kind of co- cooperation with the International Space Station. So that's something we have to be very careful about. Are they going to militarize space? I don't know. But if you look at all the leading indicators, it seems like that's the case. And they also talked about being one of the first to take property rights on the surface of the moon. That's never been talked about before. And that's a whole new area for people out there that want to go out and get a degree you know, or their Juris Doctorate degree. Imagine space law is going to be an even more yeah. important subject to talk about. No, I think you're exactly right. So let's talk about China. Obviously, they made quite a bit of news with the spy balloon, which we talked about sure. a great deal of the time. Now it's being reported that the Chinese spy balloon actually gathered intelligence from sensitive U.S. military sites in spite of American efforts to prevent them from doing so. How big of a deal is this, Steve? I think it's a very big deal. And again, going off into the other world of politics slightly, something should have been done immediately about this, whether it was Trump in in charge or whether it's Biden in charge. But the thing is, this object did go and navigate over the United States intentionally. There was nothing that we did except to send a couple of U-2R aircraft up there that flew above it took pictures. We'll never know the real story on this, but here's the strange part about it. It apparently is an ELIT, electronic intelligence platform, that has the capability to do and send in real time. That's what I understood from reading things like The Wire by Tyler Rogaway, you know, his his website, The War Zone. He's a a credible journalist, and, and we also find out simply that this was a maneuverable platform that actually could steer itself and make figure eights over these different locations, like wow. Maelstrom Air Force Base and our, our missile base, uh, you know, the, the hidden missiles supposedly in Kansas, the underground ICBMs, and then what about Whiteman Air Force Base and where the B-2 bombers are and all that kind of stuff. So there's something uh, up that's not too good about that. Yeah, that's that's for sure. All right. Now, we've seen a lot of news about water on Mars. Uh, We've seen reports of glaciers on Mars. We've seen reports that um, maybe the the indications of water on Mars indicates there once was life there. Uh, The Curiosity rover has spotted clear evidence of ancient water on Mars. What's the story with water on Mars Right now, and if there used to be water and there no longer is, where did it go? Well, exactly. That's the main question. Where did the water go on Mars? So here's the quick answer. Water may have flowed, according to astrogeologists, 40 million years ago. And this particular water, there's a reason that it might have disappeared. Here's one. A climate change of sorts on Mars may have happened 600 million years ago as part one. I know we said 40 million years ago water may have flowed. But some 600 million years ago, volcanic activity was off the charts on Mars. So some may have been around, let's say, 40 million years after or 40 million years ago. But here's the real answer. Mars' core had solidified. The Earth's core has a liquid core inside of it. It's spinning. It's it's actually bubbling around and it's changing some, even the time of the Earth's rotation spin, faster or slower. 
But Mars has relatively no magnetic field, unlike the Earth's. So if you have no magnetic field to protect the planet from the you know, wind of the sun, and since Mars is farther away, a planet that has no magnetic field or no protective layer around it, the water basically gets pushed out into space by the solar wind. So Mars may still have water, according to many, in these underground aquifers. And the reason they say that is there's evidence of large gullies on the surface of Mars. So if I were looking, if I were Elon Musk, and he probably knows this, and his team, it's probably underground. How far? We don't know. We have to get there first. Okay, um, a lot of people rely upon you to guide them through what's worth seeing. A lot of folks gave you credit for giving them the first heads up they'd heard on the uh, five planets that were aligned sure. and they're able to uh, being able to see them. What can we see in the forthcoming days, weeks, in terms of looking up at the sky? Well, once again, that beautiful pink Paschal moon celebrates the Passover and Easter season. It's beautiful to look at. And something that many people have seen since childhood is this very interesting subject called periodola. Well, this is interesting. What's that? It's the ability to see patterns and randomness. Sometimes you can see like animals and clouds. But don't forget, when you look at the moon with the naked eye or binoculars, two of the most prolific things that even children love to see are the woman's face on the moon and the old man in the moon. Mm. And you can actually see that many times is if you let your mind wander and dream, because those are the mare on the surface of the moon. But what's visible now, this is really interesting. Most of the major planets have pushed themselves toward the sun. Jupiter goes into conjunction with the sun on the 11th. And when I say it disappears, it means that it'll pop out on the other side months to come as a morning object. But what's in the sky in the west? You can't miss it. Venus is so bright right now. It's incredibly bright. You can't miss it. Look in the west. Maybe a 15, maybe 20 degrees high, right around 7 o'clock or 7.30. And then also in the sky will be Mercury. It reaches an elongation that's about 20 degrees away from the sun on the 11th. So you'd see Mercury low, then follow that arc from Mercury up to Venus. Those are two objects that you can see. And it's also a great time, Frank, to see something very interesting. If you look at the constellation Orion, which is headed toward the southwest, you can see Betelgeuse if you look at the constellation, the three belt stars right below it with binoculars. You can visually see, even in city lights, the little smudge called the Orion Nebula. But here's the big one. As we celebrate the Easter season and Passover, April 8, 2024, Frank, is still the big total solar eclipse for the United States and a good portion of you know, areas up in Canada. So I hope with your okay on this particular show, we can count down this. Because so many people, if they want to see something, I think the most beautiful sight in nature, if you haven't seen a total solar eclipse, we have a little time to talk about it, don't you think? Absolutely. We'll, we'll start the countdown right now. Um, all right, 800-848-9222, a bunch of folks eager to uh, chat with you. Uh, let's say hello to Michael on Long Island. Hello, Michael. Hey, Frank, Dr. Sky, you guys are great. I love this segment. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. I, I the the pink moon is fascinating. Um, yeah. I was I happened to be in Italy on my honeymoon, and I oh. actually saw a, a lunar eclipse. Oh wow! wow that beautiful. was going on. Beautiful. And what it a, what was a unbelievable. Where were you in Italy, uh, if I can ask? Where were you? Uh, I was right outside. It was let's see um, between uh, Positano. It was on the Amalfi Coast. So the oh, actual wow. town that I was in 
I think uh, let's just say the Amalfi Coast because we traveled up. That must be beautiful, just the landscape there. I've never been over there, but I want to make it on my list. To uh, but that's a beautiful thing that you saw, Michael. To see a total wow, lunar eclipse is is just un- unbelievable, and we have some of those coming up, folks. And uh, we can talk about that in future editions. And if you ever get a chance to to check it out, I mean, that's the moon is it's it's just something. It, that's why I'm fascinated by you guys. Absolutely. Well, thank you. Um, do you ever think? that we will get back to the moon and why haven't we not been there as far as landing on it michael very good question simply this since apollo 17 the budgetary issues we could have done this and continued to do it and set up big lunar cities and lunar bases i'm a little exaggerative on lunar cities i think we will go back it's going to be a slow effort i think once again talking about china i think they may beat us to the colonization of Mm. the moon meaning setting up a real you know, platform for for whatever they're trying to do. But hopefully we can harvest some of that lunar material. There's something called the helium-3 isotope, which could actually help us to get away from uh, petroleum and all those kind of products that we would have that we're having a problem here on the Earth. It's a shame they don't open up those pipelines here on the Earth. How simple. Even in Arizona here, Frank, we're paying almost $5 a gallon for gas, and everybody else in the country is. And we obviously want to find other sources, and it's probably not wind or solar that's going to solve the problems, but uh, that's for another time. But I do think, Michael, we'll get back to the moon. It'll be a slow thing, but just going there with the technology, it's something that future generations can look forward to. Let me squeeze in at least one more question here. Um, John is in Queens. John, if you can keep it brief, please. Uh, John, I'm here in Queens. I was an old student of uh, Kate in the 1970s in Hackensack High School. Ah. Oh jeez! I'm John. the guy that emailed you. That's hey, wild! Wow, this is unbelievable. It's beautiful. John. Hey, thank you for you being up thank and that's... You for your emails. And uh, you did a wonderful course in Hackensack High School in the '70s, and we formed the uh, your astronomy club, Cosmic Awareness. We were going to make a T-shirt. <laughs> oh, wow! Now you're making. Now you're taking me back in the time tunnel, Frank. Isn't but it amazing? Beautiful. That started me when you mentioned Ulug Beg, the great yes. Timurid astronomer prince. Yeah. I started on a track of Arabic and Persian in New York University. Wow. Because of you. Wow. Well, that's that's amazing. I didn't know we were that popular, but you know what? We had a lot of fun, didn't we, in those days? You know, little little tiny things make great things. And we interviewed Isaac Asimov by phone in your yes. WFDU. Right. Thing, and it was wonderful. Days. Wow, what, imagine that, Frank. Are, we had Isaac Asimov, and we were just a bunch of kids. I'm envious. That's yeah. wild. John, um, call back uh, in two weeks because uh, we're just about out of time for the hour. See, um, next week we're going to do a whole hour of uh, or two weeks of uh, This Is Your Life, Dr. Sky, right? Oh, and we'll, wow. <laughs> we'll, we'll dig everybody up that you've interacted with over the last Uh-oh. half century. Steve, it's always a treat. Thank you. Happy Easter, happy Passover. We'll talk to you in two weeks. Likewise, my friend. Check them out. The Dr. Sky Experience. In the words of the great Casey Kasem, keep reaching for the stars, but keep your feet on the ground.